Welcome to another episode of the From the Top podcast. The podcast is all about first things, where I use the first thing of any number of a variety of things, like a, a menu or a movie series or a TV series or a chapter of a book, song of an album. I use that first thing to decide if I would keep on doing that thing. So that's basically the premise of the show. If you followed along up to now, you know that I've kept kind of a uh, erratic posting schedule, but with, you know, how it is with full-time jobs and trying to get something off the ground and raising kids, all these kinds of things, it's just hard to keep a consistent schedule, but I'm trying to get a plan in place where I can maybe backlog some episodes and things like that and record them more consistently so I can get those out to you more consistently. But I appreciate you listening along. If this is your first episode, we're going to jump right into it. I've got a couple of things today that I want to talk about. I think one that I really liked and then one that I really did not like. So I think it's going to be fun to talk about both of those things. They're both TV shows this week. Um, It's just probably the easiest thing that's most readily available to me, but I have gotten some suggestions from students and through email that I'm going to try to get into some upcoming episodes. Actually, the next episode is going to be very diverse. I'm going to talk about a video game, some music, uh, lots of different things. So The next episode will be a little bit more diverse, but this week we're talking about Wednesday. We're talking about the new National Treasure series on Disney+. So, spoiler alert for Wednesday, as as far as my opinion of it, not so much spoilers of the show. I loved the first episode of Wednesday, so I'm going to be talking a lot about that. I have some notes from when I watched it. I watched the first episode probably a couple weeks ago now, and I still have my thoughts on uh, my first experience with Wednesday. I've watched a few since then, but it is just kind of a breath of fresh air. You know, something like that, especially on Netflix, you never know what kind of the quality is that you're going to be, but you can tell they put money into it. You can tell the name like Tim Burton attached that they weren't just going to halfway do it, but they thought that they had something with this show. And I think they're right. It's not perfect. It falls into a few traps, little stereotypical traps here and there. Uh, that's just kind of easy writing but for the most part, it's a pretty good, fun show. We'll just jump right into it. So the first episode is called Wednesday's Child is Full of Woe. You come to find out that every episode has something to do with Wednesday. Not obviously the show is about Wednesday Adams, but every title has the word Wednesday in it. And apparently Wednesday's Child is Full of Woe, I think Morticia says is a poem that she named Wednesday after. So that's kind of a fun uh, foreshadowing of learning that little bit of information. From the very beginning of the show, the opening sets the tone. It's a very dark but whimsical and silly kind of world. It really sets the stage. This is not the real world. Doesn't doesn't follow the rules of the real world. It's a little bit playfully gothic, somewhat paranormal. They kind of ramp up the magic and the mystery and, and the... Uh, the gothic, I guess, elements, the creatures as they come up throughout the show. Even the first episode ramps it up more than I expected. I wasn't sure how much to expect from this show. Like, I wasn't sure if the Adams Family, if they're just the weird ones and everything else is the real world and it's just how the real world interacts with them. But at least in this version, they are not the only ones who are a little bit spooky and kooky, like the song would say. So the family are not the only ones who live by these rules, these gothic rules, and, and the rest of the world is just normal. It's it's definitely the rest of the world has these magical elements to them, but the whole thing is just a bit surreal, over the top. So you get the sense that really anything can go. Any, any rules can go. Another thing that I noticed from the beginning is that the show, at least surprisingly to me, 
leans into the violence a little bit or a little, a little bit of gore more than you might expect. And it's it's not necessarily a kid's show, but it's not just for grown-ups either. I, I guess you could call it a family show, teenagers and up maybe. I wouldn't show it to kids. But for, with Burton, you you would expect him to play up the macabre. Like, I guess you can you can uh, push the limits a little bit, even though it's a TV-14 show, I think. You can, you can push the limits a little bit on a streaming service like Netflix, and Burton definitely does that. But you know that he's going to embrace as dark as he can go while he still keeping it kind of playful. Kind of going in order of the show here, the one thing that you notice is that while Luis Guzman and Catherine Zeta-Jones, they're both great actors in their own right, it's a really weird match to put these two together. That's not very convincing for them to be Morticia and Gomez. I think they both fit their roles well, like individually, but they don't really mesh well together. I don't I don't think in the grand scheme of things that's really going to be a detriment to the show. Uh, I do think that there will be a little bit more about Morticia and Gomez that we will find out later, but yeah, they're hardly in the first episode, really so it doesn't really matter. Uh, another thing that's very cool is that there's really cool music and title sequence with a kind of like a funky synth edge on top of like a spooky harpsichord. So it definitely sets the tone for the show that we're getting gothic, we're getting but modern. It's going to be dark but playful. Really, really fits the opening title sequence and the rest of the show. And you can definitely tell it's a Burton show with the focus on big eyes. You know, Wednesday doesn't blink. Burton always focuses on the eyes, I guess, as kind of a window to the soul kind of thing. There's all these gothic little morbid touches here and there. He doesn't back away from that. So early in the show, we see the type of Wednesday that we're getting. And the type of rules that kind of apply to her. The first thing we see is that she takes revenge on these people who are bullying Pugsley in this, I guess, regular public high school that she's been going to. And this gets her sent straight to Nevermore Academy. And this is a school, obviously from the title Nevermore, like it is derived from Edgar Allan Poe. He's kind of like the patron saint, I guess, of this school. It's a school for outcasts and freaks and monsters. One thing that jumps out at me from that opening scene is that I don't really like shows that portray just every average high school student outside of our main character as just relentlessly savage bullies for no reason. That's the teacher in me coming out. I'm not naive enough to think that people can't be awful, but I just, I don't like that that's you know, that's what people around the world think of when they watch media that portrays people in high school is that most everybody outside of the people that we root for are just relentless bullies. And I don't think that's a fair take, but it's it's this kind of world where we're playing with extremes, I guess. And Wednesday has to have a reason for doing what she does. And I won't spoil what she does, but she gets kicked out of school and sent to this school that's essentially for freaks and outcasts. I just don't like that a show can make it seem like, and also what this show does is that it makes it seem like any small town guy, teenager, you know, regular, even the the sheriff, the local local small town people, are all just mindless hicks that hate anything that's different from them. Uh, sure, there are people that are like that, just like there are bullies in high school. But for the most part, the people that you'll run into in small towns are not just going to be people that just hate everything they see and they encounter as soon as they see it. But it works for the show. You've got to have the people in the town next over struggling to recall the name now of what that town next door is. But they run into the students from Nevermore and instantly they're just mindless redneck hicks in regard to anything that's different from so while Wednesday and her family are on the way to Nevermore Academy, we get our first hint that maybe 
the major conflict of the show that could be like the running storyline is that some kind of creature is attacking people and basically ripping them apart. And the show doesn't really hide from the, any kind of detail like that. It doesn't really shy away from the weirdness and the scariness of that. So that's something that I'm sure the show will continue to come back to is this underlying element, this mystery element of what is this monster, this creature out there that's attacking people. And it's still so early on in this stage of the show that we're not sure what kind of rules other creatures and people will follow outside of the Adams family. But we get a little bit more information about that once Wednesday actually gets to this school. Just a couple of other notes about the show. It, it's it's obviously part of the Adams family that they like the dark and the gloomy and the kooky and spooky and all those kinds of things. But it is pretty funny, kind of dry humor that's just one-offs and things like that, that they find beauty in the dark and gloomy things. So any chance that they get to kind of pull a deadpan one-liner, kind of twist it on its head of something that should be terrible and they find joy in it, that's, that's a usually pretty funny gag. It works for the most part. Another thing is that Gwendolyn Christie is in this show, so you probably know her most from Game of Thrones. She plays Brienne of Tarth, uh, but she's also Captain Phasma in Star Wars. You never see her face in Star Wars, but you hear her, you know that it's her. And she looks unrecognizable in this show because she is such like a for lack of a better term, a manly brute force in Game of Thrones, and now she's this kind of classic 50s and 60s style lady in in, uh, Wednesday. She looks very unrecognizable, but she's great in her role. So we learned that Wednesday has to have court-ordered therapy, and so you instantly you think, well, that can't go wrong. Like a therapist, you know, they're probably ready for anything, but they're not ready for somebody like Wednesday. And um, we also learned that Wednesday is rooming with Enid, who, a best comparison is that Enid is like a real-life fancy Nancy who who's, her half of the room looks like a pinata just exploded all over it. So we have Wednesday's half of the room that's bare and black and white, and Enid's over here looking like a Care Bear mixed with a Squishmallow just decorated and then threw up all over her room. That's, it's, of course, obviously they're going to be character foils for each other. Enid is so peppy and optimistic and hopeful and Wednesday could care less about most things. I think the school looks great too. Uh, you know, this is another touch where they could have cut corners. They could have just, you know, t- t- taken the easy route on and setting up some of these set pieces and things like that. But the school really looks great. Uh, it kind of looks like Hogwarts in the upside down. It is even complete with groups broken down by the type of creature they are. There's about four groups, so you want to think the house situation in Harry Potter. That's kind of how these groups and these cliques separate themselves. But you can just tell that they want to do it right. It looks great, the setting, the effects. Uh, Wednesday, we learn, has visions. There's crystal balls. It's a, it's a fun it's a fun, weird world where people in it, they, they take it seriously, even if we know from the outside that the world is kind of larger than life. We don't know how much to take seriously or what to expect, and we know that it's a little quirky, but the people in the world just accept it, and they do... You know, they play it straight, even though we know that these touches are kind of weird. So my take on Jenna Ortega as Wednesday, she has a perfectly harsh deadpan delivery, and she contrasts so well with the other inexplicably upbeat and modern, somewhat cliched students who are just your average everyday student that you would see today, but they are, have that little fantastical twist. Um, they speak with modern slang, they're into modern things, they've got phones, they're on social media, and then there's Jenna Ortega who's contrasted against them that can't be bothered with social media. She's not interested right now in things like dating or getting involved in school spirit and those kinds of things. She is just deadpan. Everything's terrible. Everything's gloomy. And so it really works, that contrast. 
she is uh, she's just revolted by anything modern or social media that today's teenagers would be interested in. And she has the stare, she has the eyes, she has the non-blinking down perfectly. Just a stiff, upright posture, but still really good at everything, which I guess works for her character. That's just part of who she is. And obviously, such a weird family, she's going to have been trained in everything and have all kind of background experiences. But it's kind of annoying when a character that you know, doesn't have to work for anything, she's just good at everything. So she's good at fencing, karate, she knows everything, she's a cello player, all these kinds of things. She's just fast-talking and quippy and smart, like we got a hybrid Lorelai Gilmore slash Beetlejuice situation. Uh, she's definitely more of a, a literary or a cartoon character than a real person, meaning she, she's not somebody that you would expect to exist in the real world, whereas she does come across people that she interacts with that would be part of a real world like you and I would expect. She's not one of those. Christina Ricci, who one time was Wednesday Adams herself, shows up as the dorm mom in this show, so that's fun that she's there, and she's been lots of things lately. I've seen her in Yellow Jackets lately, and she's just really good, and she's really good in this, too. Uh, she's kind of almost playing the same character that she plays in Yellow Jackets, at least, you know, characteristics and mannerisms but she she's the dorm mom for Enid and for Wednesday I think it's pretty obvious now I don't know if they're trying to pull the rug out from under us and make us think this or not I think she's pretty obviously set up to be like a much bigger role than we might expect when we see her in the first episode she could be early take she could be one that's hurting people but also that could just be a misdirect they do some things in this episode to make you think maybe there's more to her sinister than meets the eye but a lot of times when you get that early on that they're just trying to direct your attention, kind of a little hand-waving to make you think one thing about a character. One thing that bothers me is Thing. And if you've seen The Addams Family, you know that Thing is just a detached hand with stitches all over it that has a mind of its own. And it's a great effect, but I don't like it. It's gross. It's weird. The sound effects, you hear his movements, the fingers like ASMR type stuff. Ugh, I don't like it. Uh, but it is a great effect. It looks great. And it's cool how, how he communicates, but I don't like it and it's gross. There are some aesthetic choices in this show that make it feel kind of timeless. And when I say that, I mean it's kind of like out of time. It doesn't really matter in time where it is. It is in the modern world because the kids are all about social media and technology, but then Wednesday has nothing to do with it. And the principal dresses like she's in the 1950s. So it's just kind of all over the place, just kind of a whimsical, timeless world. doesn't really matter, I think, what, what time or day it is. And the vehicles kind of keep you guessing, too, because they're out from all over the place. You could have classic cars all the way up to modern vehicles. The local town, Jericho is its name. Uh, remember that? The local town, Jericho, looks like an old-fashioned, small town, while the, you know, kind of a court square kind of feeling, while the therapist's office is very modern. So it's all unsettling, I think, is supposed to be the effect. It's weird. It works with the surrealism of anything goes, kind of keep you uneasy and guessing throughout the show. So another thing this show is doing, just like I mentioned earlier with the creature that's out there that seems to be harming people, we're not really sure what that is. Is it a werewolf? Is it a wild animal? Is it some type of monster situation? That's one mystery that's being set up, but this first episode is setting up a lot of storylines that we'll obviously come back to. So there's one mystery storyline that could involve Gomez. We get a little information about some kind of secret lore or prophecy involving Wednesday and what looks like an evil pilgrim somehow maybe linked to Pilgrim World, which is a thing that exists in Jericho, kind of a Salem Witch Trials version of Disney World um, that just happens to be in the next town over. Uh, apparently, werewolves are a thing in this show. Enid herself is a form of werewolf, but she can't fully transform. So all, all she can do is 
protract her claws, but that's definitely going to come back up for sure. That's all the characterization we get about her as far as her werewolf side of things right now, but you know that that's going to come back up. If they mention it in the first episode, she will wolf out at some point. One thing that surprised me about the show is that there is a love interest, actually more than one. And I don't hate these people, really. Sometimes, you know, the main character that you like or you root for just is chasing the douchiest, just why are we interested in this guy kind of thing. But that's, that's not the case for this show. The people that she's into in this show or that she seems or seems to be into her, at least, have a lot of depth to them. They have their own backstories that we're going to find out more about. Um, one of them is the sheriff's son from Jericho, so that's going to play you know, that's going to have some conflict. The sheriff's son in the town next over from Nevermore, who already has a mistrust for Gomez, for this mystery backstory, uh, mistrust, anything that to do with Nevermore Academy and these outcasts. And then the son, who may be interested in Wednesday, who may be the most outcast of the outcasts. It'd be interesting to see how that plays out. He seems like a nice, innocent kind of guy that, that we will definitely learn more about. We're getting towards the end of my notes for the first episode of Wednesday. And I just have to say that the end of the episode, after we've set up all these storylines, we've introduced these characters pretty well. It wasn't too quick. It felt it, it kept a really tight, but not too quick pace where it introduced all these characters and how the world works, at least laying enough groundwork so we can come back to these things and know who everybody is. But we're not overwhelmed. I thought they did a really good job of that. But the end of the episode comes absolutely out of nowhere. And it's a really intriguing twist that does not seem to set up good things for Wednesday. And I'll leave that at that. But one of the characters that it looked like we were setting up to be a big character or a big role going forward, I'll say that that, that character is probably not going to be around for much longer. But then there is just some kind of, this was the, probably the, the part of the show that surprised me the most. Some kind of crazy looking monster with an absolutely bonkers design. Even for this world, it, it is just an unreal and wacky monster. My jaw was probably hanging open. Just the design on this monster is not like anything you've seen, and it is Tim Burton. It reminds you of a Burton animation style brought to life, and it's just unsettling and weird, uh, but it fits the world perfectly. It's just so unexpected to see that kind of design come to life only in a Tim Burton movie. Uh, just think the eyes. If you've seen any kind of Tim Burton animation, Corpse Bride or Nightmare Before Christmas, it fits him perfectly. It's just so weird to see that kind of thing contrasted against real life character. Personally, I think the monster right now is Christina Ricci's character, but that probably means that it's Gwendolyn Christie's character because I think that they're trying to make us think that it's Gwendolyn Christie's character. I can't think of her name. She's the headmaster. It's probably her. I can't tell. One thing that I've learned about movies and watching characters and character development and those kinds of things is that Apple, like the company Apple, iPhones and Macs and all those kinds of things, they will not let their villains, or they will not let villains in a show use iPhones and things like that. So when you're watching a character develop in a show and you're trying to figure out if this is a good guy or a bad guy, look at the type of device they have. Apparently, if they're using Mac products or Apple products, then they're not going to be the bad guy. And Gwendolyn Christie's character is using a MacBook in this episode. So to me, that says that she's not the bad guy. Now, will they be able to pull the rug out from under us on that and kind of flip that on its head? We will find out. But I think that this monster is Christina Ricci's character. I think that they want us to think that it's Gwendolyn Christie. But like I said, she's using an Apple product. So I don't know that it can be her. There's just so many characters and storylines and interesting elements about this whole world that just unfolded naturally. 
not overwhelmingly. I think it's pretty amazing, honestly, that they could set up this whole world this way. A lot of action, a lot of uh, some some romantic maybe storylines being developed, a lot of characterization, and they still move the plot fairly along and develop Wednesday's characters pretty well already. It kept moving, but it wasn't rushed. So overall, this first episode left a really, really good impression on me. It's entertaining. It's not perfect. There's still some cliche things like some CW elements of teen shows that I won't get into. It's not worth complaining about. For the most part, it's really good, at least so far for the first episode. It looks good. You can tell they put a lot of time and attention and money into it. They've got the Tim Burton touch where he has some misses too. But for the most part, you can trust him to put out a good product, a good a good uh, movie or show. So I'm going to keep watching Wednesday. Like I said at the beginning, I'm still watching Wednesday. But this first episode definitely left a good enough impression on me that I wanted to watch more. For the second first thing of this episode, we're going to talk about something just as much as I liked Wednesday I hated this next thing. National Treasure Edge of History. If you are a National Treasure fan or even a Nicolas Cage fan, just turn back now. Probably don't listen to the rest of this. Don't, don't turn this show on. What a waste. I don't know that it gets better. It doesn't deserve to get better than the first episode. For everything that you might have wanted it to be, National Treasure is not a masterpiece, but they're good. And I've watched it recently as an adult, even though they came out when I was a kid. Loved it when I was a kid. So cool. All the American history perspective and connections and Nicolas Cage solving puzzles and stealing Declaration of Independence and blowing up Mount Rushmore or whatever he had to do to find the Book of Secrets. Like All those things were fun and just everything about this television adaptation just is an insult to whatever National Treasure was. So we'll just go through. I always, you know, take my notes in the order of the things that come up during the show, so they may kind of feel all over the place, but just kind of my reactions as I watched. First thing that was kind of cool that made me think, okay, we're going to do this the right way, was that we see Harvey Keitel, which I think if you're not going to get like a Nicolas Cage, I mean, Harvey Keitel's a big name actor. We got him back. Uh, apparently this may this is uh, the only episode that he's going to be in, but it's still pretty cool to start off with the direct connection back to the movies. You get hints of the original theme music, so you think, okay, yes, this is going to be National Treasure. It's not. Where the, the original two had a lot to do with, I know that the Templar Treasure was not originally an American thing, but everything ended up to do with the Founding Fathers and the Freemasons and all those kinds of secret societies that are kind of embedded in American history. This version of the show is more connected to uh, Central and South American history, which is, you know, not a problem. It's just, it's a different take on things. But that is one of the things that I like personally about National Treasure is that it is embedded and ingrained in these kind of American heroes or American founding fathers, kind of the, the little bit of the mythology behind that. That's a missing element looks like from this show so what we apparently are on the hunt for in national treasure edge of history they couldn't really be bothered by by picking an ancient civilization they just oh it's all of them there's mayan there's incan there's aztec relics and some of it somehow leads to a hidden treasure we can't really pick one it's all kind of the same so it's just all of them uh we are we are watching or keeping up with the family of a treasure hunter endangered by some kind of hidden figure named Salazar, which is the name of any kind of South American, Central American gang lord villain, and just turn a show on. If there's a bad guy that's from that area of the world, his name's probably Salazar. It is in this show, too. Uh, So a man who apparently double-crossed the Salazar character or is hunting the same treasure as Salazar, his family escapes, 
And uh, the mother does not want her daughter, who is our main character of this show, to grow up to be like her father. Well, obviously, she's going. And even though she never met her father, she inherited all these different character traits from her father, again, she never met, that are not character traits that you would inherit. But it's just an easy, lazy thing to be like, oh, she's that way because her father was that way. This show, like, it's just not National Treasure. It's, we're focusing on not, again, I'm not old. I'm not that old. Nicolas Cage is way older than me, but when I was a kid... I didn't have to have the movie be about a group of teenagers who don't know anything about American history or treasure hunting or anything like that to get invested in the show. It was somebody who this was their passion, their career, I guess, to pursue this Templar treasure and this kind of family passed down through generations of of the family, a connection to this treasure. It's just a really bad cliched group of interchangeable teenage slash early 20-something leads and a stock bad guy, Catherine Zeta-Jones, who, again, was in Wednesday and is really doing really well. She's clearly bored and not interested in this character who uh, is just, just have, there's just an evil board. There's just a board that's sponsoring the hunt for this treasure. Gosh, it's stupid. The really obvious exposition that, that tells us that the writers and the people in the show just think that we're stupid. They're just saying things that you would not say out loud if two people are in on a conspiracy together and you work for this evil organization, you're not just going to walk around in broad daylight on the hunt for this stuff or chasing this group of teenagers around just saying things that are obviously knowledge to you. Then The only reason you'd say them is for the benefit of the people watching it on TV. It's just bad. There's really sappy forced storylines that are supposed to get us to empathize with these main characters involving like which of these faceless teenagers is dating who and just we don't care about these people. We don't, they're not interesting. They don't have a history like Ben Gates and Riley and all them are interesting because they're in the middle of the action. And we get to know the characters as they're on the chase. We don't have to figure out who these teenagers are who get around because they're by taking public transit and they have to get to their classes in between hunting treasure or being chased by the fake FBI around whatever town they're living in. It's just it's just not interesting to me. I don't understand the decision that they made. It didn't have to be Nicolas Cage, but put the professionals in there. Put the people in there who have history and a stake in this. And it's not just somebody who accidentally wound up at, at the middle of this chase. But yes, we see Catherine Zeta-Jones' character. I don't know her name. She's wearing a really bad blonde wig and she works for some kind of evil board that has apparently the same connections as like Mr. Nobody from uh, Fast and the Furious or like Spectre from James Bond. Just... If you have the kind of resources that these people have, you're not following a teenager around who doesn't know anything about what she's doing and not being more ruthless than you are just to perpetuate a TV show. It just doesn't make any sense the way that they've done this. I don't know the intelligence level that they think of the audience that might be watching this. I just don't think that that's the audience that you're going after. I don't think you're trying to get today's teenagers interested in maybe you are i don't know but that's not what they did with national treasure national treasure was not interesting again because it was teenagers it was interesting to a wider range of audience so i think it was just a mistake to say we're going to target the demographic just make it a cool story like the original one don't make it about wannabe youtubers who are more concerned about whether their fit or their drip is on fleek or whatever and whether they're going to make it to the next pop-up sneaker sale that's not right it's not good it's just terrible it's cliched it's boring it's eye-rolling it's just not 
it's not right. I mean, I guess it makes sense that they on a just as lazily as they can, they're trying to get us invested and to create some kind of storylines for these people in the show. But we don't know these people. We don't care about the relationship drama in a show about hunting centuries-old treasure. That's another thing. Turning it into a show is obviously just a way to keep people subscribed past a month. But the movie didn't have to do that. The movie kept the action and the pace going, and you have to draw it out. Now, I will say there is one redeeming quality about this first episode of the show, is that we find out that these this group of friends is somewhat capable of solving puzzles because they do an escape room. And if you know me, you know that I love escape rooms. And that's about the only interesting part of this show, was watching them break out of a fake prison for an escape game. And that's about it. But anyway, just to take you through the rest of the show, the rest of the episode, this girl, the main character, works in an aban- or at a storage unit, storage facility. And there's an abandoned storage unit that this girl, uh, if she wants to get the promotion that she's after, she has to solve the mystery of who owns it. So, conveniently enough, she figures out that it has some kind of connection to the Freemasons. She tracks down the owner of storage unit, and it is Harvey Keitel. She goes to visit him, and but this is where we find out that he's now actually kind of a delusional old man, suspicious of everyone, maybe some dementia setting in. Uh, he's kind of turned into an old historical conspiracy theorist after the first time we saw him in National Treasure 1. He, did, he wasn't into all that, but because of what he's learned... He's, he's kind of had gotten twisted on that, and now he's kind of this old historical conspiracy theorist. And he, because he is delusional, he overshares at the first chance he gets this girl that he's never met before. All of a sudden, she's apparently worth sharing every dark secret that he can about this hidden treasure that he's discovered that he can't know if she's, if her father or whoever, he actually doesn't know that her father is somebody that that knew about the treasure and, and is chasing after this treasure. So he tells her, for example, he tells her to trust no one with these secrets that he's just imparted to her. Right after he just met her five minutes ago and told her his deepest, darkest secret. Don't trust anyone. Uh, but he's all impressed that she tracked him to his home, and she conveniently has always wanted to work for FBI cryptanalysis, if that's a thing. That's a thing that she's always wanted FBI cryptanalysis, I guess, to kind of like a Robert Langdon, uh, Da Vinci Code kind of character. Like that's, that's always what she's wanted to do. Another thing we learn about our main character is that she's not an American citizen, and uh, she she wants to pass her citizenship test and to impress Harvey Keitel's character as somebody who knows a lot about American history. She drops, you know, rarely known American historical knowledge like Texas used to be a part of Mexico, and he just can't believe that somebody would know that. That somebody would know. You know your American history. Because Texas used to be a part of Mexico. Well, I didn't know that that was a deep, dark, you know, buried secret. I thought that was pretty common knowledge myself. In a show that's about, historically, it's about American history. That's hardly the most interesting thing. But anyway, he notices that she wears a medallion that uh, she knows nothing about. But he recognizes it as part of a history of treasure protectors, much like the Gates family that's linked to ancient civilizations and their treasure and their history. So she, he recognizes her as a descendant of somebody that he would likely have trusted. That's why he puts this kind of trust in her and shares these secrets. But again, that's, that's just really quick on the trigger uh, for somebody who trusts nobody and is trying to protect all this ancient history. So anyway, some other things about the show. The dialogue is atrocious. They say These are quotes from the show. Things like, Somebody calling somebody else a reckless good-for-nothing. Nobody nobody says this. And then just out of nowhere, somebody, you know, one of the main characters solves a clue or something like that. Another one says, old school dap. Like, gosh, nobody would say that. 
that would not come out of somebody's mouth. Or somebody drops just some kind of random historical fact and another character says, ugh, classic patriarchy. These are just not regular people. These are not what normal people would say. Write something better than this. You work for Disney. You're writing a national treasure show. Do better than this. And they clearly stole the let's drop a random historical factoid to make our main character look more knowledgeable thing from the movie. But these things in the movie actually had to do with the situations that they were in. And they were solving the clues at hand or throwing off the bad guys, throwing them off the scent. And they didn't really have anything to do with the context that they were delivered in in this show. They just thought, huh, what works from memory? Oh, I kind of remember National Treasure. I'll, I'll just, I'll throw these couple of things in in this show that I'm writing. Like, do better than that. It's supposed to be good. So these characters, again, we just can't get invested in them. They're more interested in recording things for YouTube that are obviously ancient historical secrets and you're making a YouTube show to reveal what you've discovered as you as you progress through these clues. It's stupid and stop making stupid modern one-liners in references and not really being in a hurry about anything. They're just randomly discussing important details about this treasure hunt that they're on just in the middle of people's like backyard. And then it's like, well... This is important, but I need to get to class. We'll talk about this later. It's just annoying. So back to the mysterious, evil background bad guy organization. Uh, they send some fake FBI agents after our main character who are clearly not FBI agents. And if they are as ruthless as they seem to be as an organization, if they're willing to kill people over this and they have been willing to do it for centuries and they've got all the resources in the world, then they definitely would have just taken her and tortured the information out of her. It's not believable that they would go through all these charades of pretending that they don't know what's going on or that they're fake FBI agents just to trick her into giving them some information. They would have just gotten rid of her, gotten the information out of her that they needed and then never saw her again. There's also lots of, oh, you're just like your dad. You got this from your dad. Your dad was just a guy who did the wrong thing for the right reason. All these things that you inherit, you don't inherit character traits like that from people that you never met. It's let her show us those things. You're developing a character. Show uh, show her being that way instead of being cheap and lazy about it and not letting us discover those things about her for ourselves. Like I said, the dialogue is unbearable. Apparently, that, it must have been really bad because I wrote it several times. The friends, like this character Oren especially, are just so unlikable. It's not great. I had some other notes about like the plot of the, of the first episode of the show. It's not really worth getting into because I'm not going to continue watching this series. So I'm going to skip past some of those things. Uh, there are some kind of cool, I guess, connections to the Freemasons. But the tension and the action that they try to build up in this show, it just kind of ruins it. For example, there's a quote-unquote high-speed chase where the fake feds are chasing these teenagers or this group of friends just who are riding just a regular city bus. It's not action-packed. We're traveling 35 miles an hour down a road, and we're trying to figure out where these kids are going. They're not even running anywhere. They're just walking wherever they go and having conversations along the way. Like, get going. If you think these people are dangerous and they're trying to get after your ancient treasure, go. It's just that this show, it was shot for Disney+. Plus. It's more suited for Disney Channel, like 15 years ago. It's just hard to feel the tension in a show where the biggest threat to the main character is not some kind of secret evil organization bent on getting the treasure at whatever cost. It's that the main character thinks that she might get in trouble enough with the government or the FBI that she might get deported. 
And I didn't make that up. That's something they mentioned multiple times throughout the show. If you have to steep to that level to try to create tension in a show like this, then maybe you should have gone back to the drawing board. So the last thing we see in the show is this crazy Salazar character who's doing his best Bruno impression from Encanto in a prison in Mexico City, just scratching up random drawings of these ancient relics and plastering his walls with old parchment-looking papers in case we couldn't already tell that he's the crazy bad guy. He's just lined his walls with clues about these ancient civilizations and, these tre and this treasure. It's just all really, really lazy. It seems very poorly written, poorly produced, cash in on the name. They should have just held out for a movie with Nicolas Cage. I'm hoping that this will actually propel them to do that. They're thinking this is to do some because it's 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 a really cool concept as far as a series. And you can't just throw it away because the show's bad. Let's go back to a movie. Part of it being a show is that we won't get to the clues and the set pieces and the action nearly at the pace that you need to make things interesting. Uh, they they don't have any of the resources either that the characters Ben and Riley and Abigail would have had in the movies because those people are grown adults and they've built a life around this and then obviously had money from the first treasure they found. It's not going to be very interesting, I don't think, to watch the Saved by the Bell cast wander around the same town using the sidewalk or public transportation to find clues that just happen to be conveniently located three blocks away in the town that they already live. I do wish that I could see some of the more ancient history, Indiana Jonesy type stuff that probably they're going to save all for the last episode for budgetary reasons, but I'm just not going to stick around for it. It it doesn't have to be a modern update with annoying contemporary leads. That's not what made the originals popular, and it's not it's not the audience who's going to turn in for a TV or who's going to tune in for a TV series about national treasure. They want more of what made it popular in the first place. They should have stuck with that formula. This is not good. It's going to be drawn out too long and the writing is bad. I'm just not going to watch it. That's going to do it for this episode of From the Top. I hope you enjoyed hearing my thoughts on Wednesday and National Treasure Edge of History. I do want to say that I noticed listening back and doing the edit some of my words were getting clipped off there at the end. I'm not really sure what was happening there, but I'll make sure going forward that I fix those. Just ironing out the kinks, trying to get this podcast started. If you have any suggestions for anything you'd like to hear me cover or try on the show, you can hit me up at podfromthetop at gmail.com. I'm already working on some other suggestions that I've gotten in from some students and from some emails. I'm excited to get to those. Don't forget that this podcast is part of the Across the Top Podcast Network. Uh, we're wrapping up the 20 for 20 podcast pretty soon. I've got the final episode ready to go, so that'll be available soon. And uh, don't forget to check out Yanks Across the Pond as well by Andrew Fisher, who's covering American soccer players playing for the biggest clubs abroad. Thank you for listening to my rants this week. Went a, bit, a little bit long, but had one show that I really liked and one that I really didn't. So again, hope you enjoyed the show, and I will catch you next time. <laughs>